Hi guys. I hope you found last week's eco-anxiety program helpful. If you have any questions, thoughts or comments on it, or anything we bring up in the Ecolution, please email junior at rte.ie. I love to hear feedback. But I don't appreciate your stance on veganism. Who said that? Everyone's a critic. If any of you have projects that you're doing on your own or with your school, please email us too. It would be great to shine a brighter light on all the great work being done on climate action by young people. Okay, we mentioned this in our first one back after Christmas. Australia. There are so many crazy things going on in the world right now. From Trump to the elections to Brexit, there is a lot of loud noise. And it can drown out the things we need to hear most. While it was all over the news at Christmas, the bushfires in Australia seem a lot less present, at least for those of us in Europe. But they are not going away. So, we thought we'd do an episode that explained a bit about how they happened, what it means, and how we can see a way through it. Bushfires are a normal part of the Australian ecosystem. They happen regularly and are part of the ebb and flow of the countryside. The first one of this current space started as far back as June. But this is different. These fires have lasted longer than any others in living memory. A seven-day state of emergency is declared in the Australian state of New South Wales in response to the bushfire crisis. Conditions have worsened as bushfires threaten an area popular with tourists. How come we only had four trucks to defend our town? Because our town doesn't have a lot of money, but we have hearts of gold, Mr. Rising temperatures and strong winds are forecast this weekend. What about the people who have nowhere to live? You're not welcome. We've asked Dr. Shane, our resident nature guru, back to explain. So, why are bushfires a natural thing? So, fire is built into these forests. In fact, fire needs to happen for most forests to survive. The problem with some of these forest fires is that they're happening where nature is being controlled, where we are preventing dead wood from being cleared. We're preventing some of those fires happening because with some species of tree, fire is needed to germinate those seeds. It's needed to help those trees regenerate. Now, unfortunately, it's happening too much over there at the moment. But fire is usually an important part of an ecosystem in a tropical environment. So it will recover. It might be different, though. And that's the important point, that this is much bigger than anything Australia has ever experienced in the human story. The fires pose a huge threat to so many. The atmosphere is seeing clouds of black smoke released into it every day on a monumental scale. Plumes have travelled more than 6,000 miles. The smoke is rising, cooling and generating colossal clouds, which trigger thunderstorms, adding the chance of lightning, reigniting the fires. New South Wales, in the southeast of the country, is the region most severely affected. Across Australia, over 100,000 square kilometres of trees and bush have been burnt, although some wetter weather is helping the efforts to put them out. Over 50 fires are still burning, and this has a cost to us as humans, but even more immediately, the wildlife living in the area, particularly because the biodiversity of Australia is truly unique. Well, Australia can be thought about as an island, a giant island, and it is. It's the biggest island in the world. And like any island that could be in the middle of the Pacific or the middle of the Atlantic, any of the life that lands there, that was there, starts to get very different over time. And that's exactly what Australia has done. 
Because Australia used to be joined to this huge landmass called Gondwana or Gondwana land back at the time of the Jurassic, around 150 million years ago. And around then it started to diverge. It started to break away from Antarctica and India and even South America. And as it drifted off on its own into the ocean, the life that was on that island, including some mammals, started to become very, very different. And that's how we've got the really unique and what we call endemic species of Australia today because of separation from this bigger group of mammals. So instead of becoming the eventual mammals that we know, the bears and the horses and the tigers and humans, the Australian mammals went a different path. And that's what we call divergent evolution. So they started to become different by separation, by being on their own, alone in the ocean. And that's what makes the Australian fauna and flora so unique and so important. Australia is an enormous country. You could fit the landmass of Ireland into it 110 times. And that is part of the problem. The fires in Australia at the moment are really threatening these unique species, these species that are found nowhere else on the planet. One reason for that is because Australia largely is too hot for most life. The only areas that lush vegetative life can survive in Australia is along the coasts where the air is damp and there's lots of rain. So that means that most of the life in Australia is squeezed along the edges, along the coastlines, mainly along the east and southern coastline and northern coastline too. And that means that any damage to that area is going to have a much bigger impact because all of the life or most of the life is found there. So at other times of the year it would be lush and wet and actual rainforest like you would picture it but at this time of year where it hasn't rained for a very long time that ground is dry, that bark is dry, those leaves are really really crispy so anything to start a fire is going to really damage that area. So someone having a picnic, someone flicking a cigarette butt, even just really intense sunshine through a broken bottle or something like that and as long as there's a spark there's potential for a large fire. The other issue is that because it's on the coast it can get really windy and what's the other thing that fire needs apart from fuel and heat? It's oxygen and wind gives lots and lots of oxygen very very quickly. Record-breaking temperatures have played a part in how these fires took hold and now continue. The country had its first day on record where no rain fell anywhere on the continent. One day in December, the middle of summer in the Southern Hemisphere, Australia showed an average maximum temperature of 41.9 Celsius. There can be natural variations that lead to highs like that, but it is undeniable that fossil fuels we burn for energy, for transport, or even in a situation like these fires, are releasing too much carbon into the atmosphere. We have to find a better way. We have to try and fix it. So, in this episode on Australia, who better to show that this is totally possible than an Australian? My name is Damon Gamo, and I am the director of the film 2040, which is a letter to my daughter showing her what the world could look like in 2040 if we put into practice the best solutions that are available right now. We didn't travel over there to talk to Damon, but recorded our call via Skype, hence the sound quality. So I guess the film is a, a response to the constant sort of negative doom and gloom narrative that we get around the environment. And while it's really important to understand how bad things are, we are in a predicament, it's important to, you know, if you're going to sound the fire alarm, you've got to show people where the exits are. And I think that solutions narrative just hasn't been displayed anywhere near enough. There are so many things we can do. And I've spent the last sort of five years going around the world, meeting all sorts of people and 
been quite shocked to learn about the wonderful things that people are doing and how we actually have everything we need to not only mitigate and adapt to climate change, but actually reverse it. We just need the political will and the action and the motivation to get it done. In a time when we're seeing scary images of climate change, the bushfires being foremost in our minds, it's hard not to focus on the bad things. What does that do to us? There's really interesting psychology around using solutions to motivate people that if we only show people how bad things are constantly over and over again, it can activate parts of our brains that get uh, that shut down the parts of our brains that think creatively and, and move forward. So it's really important that we start showing people the things we can do, showing them what other people are doing in response as a way to, to get them involved and move forward. So. There's a lot of discussions going on here about how we regenerate some of these landscapes in Australia. Are we really careful about the things we replant? Are we being, you know, planting more pollinators so that we can get um, bees and other creatures to sort of thrive more and create bigger ecosystems? Also regenerative uh, agricultural practices, which uh, for people that aren't familiar is a way of pulling carbon out of the atmosphere into the soil. And once you put it in the soil, the soil is able to retain a lot more water and you get healthier foods. And in a way, it helps to sort of fireproof the farm or especially the droughts we're going through here. If there's more carbon in the soil, it's like a big sponge for the water. So it doesn't run off and run into streams and take all the chemicals with it. It actually absorbs deeper into the ground. But like I said, we're still very much in the triage phase and the trauma phase. And people aren't really talking about the solutions too much, just letting everyone sort of deal with their own grief. 2040 is a film that recognises the challenges we face, but tries to focus on the solutions we have right in front of us. Agriculture is one of the most exciting solutions, is that currently some of the practices are contributing to the problem in quite a large way. We, you know, we're using a lot of chemicals on our, on our foods, we're growing monocrops, and nature doesn't really do monocrops, it's more into diversity. Uh, we're ploughing and tilling the soil constantly, and that's putting carbon up into the atmosphere as well. And as you know, we're wasting about 30% of our food globally. So there's a really beautiful opportunity to completely switch our agricultural practices to be part of the solution. And one of those is these regenerative farming practices that involve using animals in ways that mimic um, traditional patterns where you might keep animals on a certain area of land for a while and then you move them on. And when you move them on, the grass grows back very quickly and pulls that carbon out of the atmosphere into the soil. And then you bring the animals back on again at a later date and repeat the cycle. And this is exactly what herds used to do, migrating herds, they were chased by predators and so they were constantly moving across the land, depositing obviously their faeces and other things which acts as a natural fertiliser. So a lot of farmers are doing that and finding incredible results in how much carbon they can sequester there plus the quality of their meats improved but also they're introducing trees and other crops into that system so it's a very uh, complex interwoven system as opposed to just one crop on a bit of land. It's starting to actually work with nature instead of constantly fighting it and some of these farmers are just getting wonderful results. So even people that don't think climate change is real, lots of farmers we've spoken to are starting to do this. Even vegan farmers that don't even eat their animals or sell them for food, they're still using the animals in this way to regenerate their landscapes. And that's really important to get across to people. Whether we eat them or not, we need animals back on the land. With so much carbon being put out into the atmosphere and with trees being lost, we need to look at alternative carbon catchers. Who likes seaweed? It's slimy and sticky and not that fun to swim through. But what's mad is that despite this, it may well be a huge part of the solution. Seaweed is probably one of the most exciting solutions and um, a lot of seaweed around the world is disappearing because the oceans are absorbing about 93% of the excess heat that we're creating. So in Australia, we've lost about 95% of our kelp forests and 
these kelp forests were just beautiful, like underwater forests, and so they were great habitats for fish and sea lions and all sorts of different life and, and leafy sea dragons, and so they've disappeared. The beautiful thing about kelp is that it's, it's the fastest growing organism in the world, so it can grow half a metre a day and up to 50 metres long, so it just grows really quickly in huge amounts, and that's pulling carbon out of the atmosphere, but it's also alkalising the ocean water, taking that um, acidity out of it, and it allows the fish to lay their eggs in that forest to actually because we obviously we're struggling with fish populations that we can regenerate those fish by allowing them to lay they lay lay their eggs in the kelp so it's just a really beautiful cascading solution and now people are making plastics out of seaweed like bioplastics that break down really easily they're making fibers out of it using it as biofuels and food sources so it's just an industry that we hope really takes off in the next few years and in fact uh, i'm going to france in june for the first global seaweed symposium where all the engineers and ocean experts are coming together just to work out the best way to scale this up really, really quickly. One of the main drivers of carbon pollution is our dependence on fossil fuels for power. But in parts of the developing world, they're attempting new, cleaner ways of harnessing nature. So yeah, in the film, we explore the idea of decentralised energy, so that instead of having a centralised energy provider where one big company provides the energy, that places like Bangladesh and Africa and even other parts of the world are starting to peer-to-peer -peer share their energy. So they're just um, these special boxes in their house. They can store their energy in solar uh, and batteries, and then they get to buy and sell that with each other at, at the neighbour. So it's quite a revolutionary concept. But at the moment, it is illegal in Australia and the UK and the US because the structures are in place and the policies are to protect those large organisations because they would lose a heap of money if we just started exchanging energy with each other. In fact, it would become a lot cheaper, almost free. So it's going to take a while to undo that, but it is happening. And even in Australia now, there's a few test examples. There's 2,000 residents in our capital city that have just done this microgrid and had huge success with it. So I think the next step we'll see is if you're with a particular company, you'll be able to do that if you're within their network, but we'll probably get to this sort of completely peer-to-peer -peer sharing energy in the next 15 or 20 years. How cool would it be to be able to sell the energy we make in our own homes or even share it and help a school or someone who doesn't have access? It must be hard to remain positive in Australia at this time. This film is particularly pertinent for me in Australia at the moment because we're suffering the worst bushfires we've ever had. We've lost uh, 1.2 billion animals in this fire. It's really caused a lot of trauma for people. So we're still in the middle of that. There's still fires going on right now and uh, a lot of people are, are dealing with it in their own way and it's not quite the time to talk about solutions yet because um, people need to heal. But Certainly uh, what we're finding is there's an enormous shift in awareness here. I mean, people that might have been bitter on the fence about climate change are now um, really moving quickly. A lot of the organisations behind the scenes, financial institutions, local governments are all moving very quickly. Unfortunately, we just are really dragging the chain at a federal level. We're one of the sort of the, the, the worst countries really around the world for inaction. We have a, a government that's very in bed with the fossil fuel industry here and just reluctant to do any lowering of emissions. Dr. Shane would agree. Can there be a silver lining? In the short term, it's a bad thing. And it's definitely a bad thing because it's having an impact and it's releasing lots of carbon. In the long term, it might actually motivate people to change. It has definitely opened eyes around the world. Unfortunately, it's not opening eyes with some people. And those people are the people in charge, especially in Australia. 
a lot of politicians over there still don't believe in climate change because there's different things that they're worrying about. So maybe they've got money invested in a company that's mining coal. Maybe they have friends that they need to look after. So it's not just the nature that we need to think about with climate change. It's also, unfortunately, the politics around it too. So that's very frustrating for people, but I guess what it's meaning is that people are finding their own agency and activating in whatever ways they can at their schools or in their own community or at their workplace. So it's actually forcing people to not rely on the government to do it. And it's the Robert Swan quote, you know, the greatest threat to the planet is the belief that someone else will save it. And that's certainly the case in Australia. We're uh, rolling up our sleeves and getting on with it ourselves. So where I'm based in terms of the fires, we had quite a scare. Um, it probably came within about 10 k's of our region. and. Um, I was away, actually, I was in the UK releasing the film when that happened, so my family got evacuated, which was really tough to be away from, and friends of ours uh, were very close to losing losing their homes. But pretty much everyone in Australia knows someone that's been affected in some way, and it's just, you know, destroyed so much of our landscape and so much habitat that it's quite hard to get your head around. So, yeah, it's, it's still being discussed regularly. There's a lot of trauma, there's a lot of solution discussions, but there's also a lot of denial. There's still a lot of people saying that, you know, this was because the... The burning wasn't done properly or they're just trying to find a reason to, to not say it was climate change. So it's disappointing, but that's just where we're at. Thinking of the vast numbers of animals lost to the fires is really upsetting. So what happens when catastrophes like this occur? Well, if you lose that much life in such a small, relatively speaking, place, like where the life exists in Australia, it's going to have a big impact going forward. It's going to affect what we call the genetic base of that species. So it's like taking five humans and moving them to an island in the middle of the Atlantic and deciding to set up a whole new family there. That means that you've only got a very small proportion or part of the genes of the human species. It's the same with Australia. If you take a million kangaroos out of the kangaroo group, all of a sudden that difference, that diversity in the kangaroo family is now much, much smaller. And that might mean that it's harder to survive disease in the future. It might mean that with climate change, it will be harder to adapt to those changes that are coming down the line. So these ecological collapses, as we call them, have happened many, many times in the past. Now, when they happen in a much bigger scale, we call them mass extinction events. And they've happened five times in the past. Now, we reckon that at the moment we're in the middle of our sixth mass extinction. And unfortunately, humans are probably the cause of that. So that's that's what's happening in Australia now. We think that because of climate change, we're causing these massive losses in biodiversity, not just in the diversity of the species, but in the numbers of those species. Then it happened to mammals back when the meteorite hit the earth in 65 million years ago. A lot of mammals were killed, but because of that, that allowed us to evolve. So. I can't predict what the effects of this are going to be in Australia, but there will definitely be long-term evolutionary effects on the species, on the whole island and its ecosystems, and even on the people that need to survive off those ecosystems. So change is inevitable, but there have been some unsung heroes during this crisis. Not just the incredible bravery of the firefighters and the people on the front line, in the animal world too. Wombats are marsupials who dig large burrows. Their homes are providing shelter for all kinds of other animals during the fires. Koalas, wallabies and birds have been found unharmed in the furry creatures' dens across the country. Also, just discovered that wombats are way bigger than I ever knew. Australia couldn't be further away from us, literally. 
And most of us hear about the impact of these fires online. I'd say this is one of the big challenges is that our information environment is just as polluted as our ecological environment. And it's really difficult for people now to work out how to collectively make sense on things and how to know who to trust and who the authority figures are. We've all got our own different stories, but it's really important to understand that there is so much misinformation going on about climate change and the environment. It is paid for by fossil fuel industries, by large companies that want to keep the status quo, and they have become very, very good at spending huge amounts of money and inventing clever memes to really create doubt and confusion. And that's been their whole job. They did it with tobacco, they did it with sugar, and now they're doing it very well with fossil fuels. So I would just be very aware there's a, a group called Project Drawdown, which is very accurate. Their information is fantastic. It's a great resource. Uh, we're trying to do something similar, 2040, all our website and our social media channels. We really vet, we work with universities to make sure that we're not being sensationalist and that we can actually be a trusted source because we desperately need that now. And I think people can feel the authenticity. If it feels too extreme, then obviously it's trying to hook you in. It's trying to make money. It's trying to get you to click on the post. And you've just got to start being a bit more aware uh, and a bit more savvy as to how misleading some of these groups can be. So being better informed is better armed. But what else can we do to overcome a feeling of helplessness so far away? Yeah, I mean, I get this question a lot from, we do a lot of school student visits and the kids, you know, often talk about feeling a little bit overwhelmed about the future. I say to them that, you know, the best thing you can do is to move forward and take action. It's the best way to alleviate any anxiety. And that's what I do. That's why I made the film. That's why I keep focusing on the people that are trying to solve some of these problems. And you actually have a lot, of, a lot more power than you realise. Obviously, your voices are being heard. But even think about what you can do at your own school. There are massive changes that you can make, whether it's, um, you know, with your food waste, dealing with that, whether it's renewable energy at the school, whether it's changing some of the systems that are in place. There are things that you can do, and there are organisations now that, that actually specifically come and help schools. So the first thing to do is, is fix your own environment, deal with your own surroundings, and that's about making your school as clean and green as it can be. We are the future, and it's nice to have adults like Damon in positions of influence on our side. So I think one of the main reasons for hope over the last few years is seeing how active the kids have been around the world. And, and I can say that they're categorically that they're being heard, that it might not appear at sometimes in the mainstream media or from leading politicians, but behind the scenes, there is so much going on. There is so much movement from corporations and large financial institutions and communities because they understand, a lot of them have got children themselves, that these kids mean business and they're not going to stop, they're just going to keep going. And, you know, one of the most hopeful stories I've heard was one of the large shipping companies, Maersk, who have pledged to go zero emissions by the middle of the century. And the CEO said that they did it because they can't get people to work for them out of the universities in Denmark anymore. Because the kids are saying, why would we work for you if you're destroying our future? So. I think it's important that children of that age trust that they are being heard. Even if they're being told the opposite, there is absolutely an impact that's going on behind the scenes. And I'd encourage them all just to keep going and encourage any adult to just support them because they actually are far more articulate on this subject than most adults. 2040 is a really hopeful film that made me feel better about our situation with every passing minute. So, how can you see it? We did do a cinema run in, in Ireland uh, at the end of last year and it's about to show at a few more cinemas and then probably in the next month or so it'll go on to iTunes and some of all the streaming uh, platforms but um, I imagine, um, in fact I'm pretty sure that a few people have been pirating it and it's probably on free and YouTube somewhere so I'd just encourage everyone to watch it any way you can. I don't care about making money, I just want people to see the film so watch it any way you can. Thanks to Damon and Shane for taking part in this e on Australia. 
there's no denying that the fires are a huge blow. But if we focus on realistic, positive actions as young people, we can make things better. Because all the students are so lit up and pumped when they start learning about the solutions because all they've heard is how bad things are. So it's important, like you said, to be realistic about them, but you've got to have in your arsenal that also what we can do about it. And so you're balancing that narrative. So it will be different, but it will recover. It will bounce back. That's what life has evolved to do, to bounce back and deal with challenges. Ecolution was produced by Nikki Cochran for RTE Junior Radio.